Good morning. For our Bible reading this morning, we're going to be continuing to read in the Gospel of Luke. We'll be reading from chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot, and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into them, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Our second reading this morning comes from the book of Colossians, and we'll be reading from chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. To Anastasia and to Krista, we really appreciate you leading us this morning uh, in prayer and the reading of God's word. I invite you to open your Bibles uh, to Luke chapter 8, verse 26 to 39. Uh, last week we saw the power of Jesus to bring calm to the chaotic forces of nature. Here we're going to see Jesus' power to loose us from the bonds of evil. This is a story that is very powerful and a little bit scary. Uh, if you're feeling a little bit uh, uh, nervous, I, I think that's okay, but, but hang in there because I trust you'll be very encouraged by the time we get through our uh, time in God's Word this morning. But I would like to begin uh, by telling you a bit about what the Lord has done for me. I don't often uh, 
do this, but I thought it would be good to start this way. Uh, in case you don't know, uh, I was not born in this country. I was born in the U.S. I grew up in Southern California, the son, the eldest son of two loving Christian parents, uh, who uh, one of two children, uh, and uh, they dutifully took us to church every every Sunday. Uh, we would go about a half hour away from our home, this really big, uh, wonderful church where they taught us the Bible. And when I was growing up, uh, I, I knew a lot about God, but I didn't really have a relationship with him personally. Uh, something else that was a little bit unique about my story is I was born with a bone condition. Uh, my mother was told by the doctor, the first thing he said after he said, you have a boy, he said, congratulations, you have a dwarf. Uh, that's because the bone structure that I, that I was born with was a bit abnormal, and this really impacted my life. Uh, so much so that uh, I really became gripped and uh, enslaved to what people thought about me. Maybe you're somebody who struggles with that and, and you wonder uh, constantly what people are thinking of you and what they're assessing of you. So I grew up, I wasn't a very rebellious kid uh, by maybe by the world's standards. Uh, I was one of those kids who always wanted to uh, do the right thing and comply, uh, mostly out of fear because I didn't want people to reject me. And that started with my parents. And it got a bit more complicated when I moved into junior high and high school uh, because to fit in, I realized I had to be a different person. And that meant I, I started swearing a lot. I, I uh, started attending and, and watching and viewing things that, that weren't helpful, developed a, a pretty significant pornography addiction uh, right around the age of uh, probably 13 or 14. And uh, in this context, I was uh, brought to a church camp. And uh, we, after we changed churches, I, I got to go to a church camp. And at that church camp, we were challenged throughout the course of the, the week to say, uh, do you know Jesus? And I remember getting so frustrated with that question because they kept saying, do you know Jesus? Do you know him? And I thought, well, I've been knowing about Jesus my whole life. Why does this guy keep saying, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Uh, and I realized by the end that while I knew about God, this personal relationship with God wasn't something that I had. And so at the end of the, the week, they gave us an opportunity to respond to the good news that we had been hearing. And I remember sitting there in the, in the room at this camp, and as they were giving the invitation and, and people were going forward, I remember looking over to my left and this you know, tall, strapping, you know, bronzed, water polo athlete guy was next to me, and I knew he partied a lot, and I knew he slept around, and I remember thinking, man, this guy really should respond to this. This is really, this is really good news. He might get his life turned around. And uh, it was about that time when I felt the Spirit of God whisper to me, Jonathan, you need to respond to this. And almost uh, like being grabbed by the shirt collar, I felt uh, compelled out of my seat and I went forward and I confessed my sin. And that was the beginning of my journey with Christ. Um, in that journey with Jesus, uh, what I can tell you is that uh, one of the things he liberated me from was uh, this fear, this enslaving fear to what others thought about me. Um, if I tell you my story about God, it's, it's a story of somebody who was so absolutely uh, cowed, so absolutely um, beholden 
to the slightest thing that somebody might say. And yes, you know, like, like all of us, there's something I still wrestle and struggle with today. Uh, but what Jesus did for me was he, he broke those bonds. He broke those bonds of needing, needing others' approval. He broke those bonds of defining myself by what other people thought about me. And instead of going through life totally uh, chained and, and beholden to others, he, he came in with a greater power, uh, a power that was redemptive. And I bring this up because I was somebody who was trying to control things around me. And our big question this morning is, what are you most trying to control? If you'd have seen me in high school, see me as, as a young person, I was trying to control everything. I wanted to make sure the teachers liked me. I wanted to make sure my parents thought well of me. I wanted to make sure, as best as I possibly could, <laughs> that the girls thought I was cool and popular. I tried to make sure that my friends were people who were respectable and admirable because I was deriving my identity from them. In a sense, I was trying to control everything around me. And when Jesus came in and he said, Jonathan, you don't have to control everything around you, it was this huge liberation. It was this release. It was this freedom. But the question that is centered around this text is, what are we trying to control? Think about it. What in your life is that thing that you are so absolutely holding on to that you have to, have to make sure it happens. You must make this secure. What are you most trying to control? You know, maybe, maybe it's a bank account. Maybe it's, maybe it's this, this reputation that you've been trying to build for yourself. Maybe it's a relationship Maybe it's your own sense of pride. It could be anything. But often behind the things that we are most trying to control are the things that we fear. And behind the things that we fear are the things that we most desire. And what we desire has the ability to take us captive. These are the uh, habits of faith and being transformed into the image of Christ. We talk about transformation a lot here at WDBC, and this are things that people who are transformed, these are things that they do. They believe the gospel, embrace the gospel, practice the gospel, model the gospel, serve the gospel, and proclaim the gospel. But of all, of all these today, what I want you to see is embracing the gospel and proclaiming the gospel. These are two things that are central to this passage. So as you think about the transformation that takes place, it's around this idea of believing, embracing, and then ultimately proclaiming. By way of an overview, the passage that we have in front of us, Luke is continuing to demonstrate his portrait of Jesus by showing his loosing power of a demon-possessed man from oppressive and uncontrollable evil. Here again, Jesus is going to act with divine authority, this time thwarting the captivating demons who are bent on destroying God's work. Now, fittingly, the disciples in this story are living fulfillments of the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 8, verse 18. In that section, Jesus said to the one who has, the implication being has ears to hear, 
that one will be given more. But to the one who does not have, the implication being does not have ears to hear, even what they think they have, even the knowledge they think they have will be taken away from them. But the disciples in this text are being given a front row seat, a preview of coming attractions, if you will, as they witness demons cowering before the power of Jesus, whom the demons know to be the son of the most high God. The disciples had enough faith in what Jesus said to continue to follow him. And by following him, they're brought into a position to receive even greater revelation. You see, all the miracles that Jesus was doing in and around Galilee, healing people uh, in the synagogues, you know, casting out demons, curing the disease, this is all happening in the public sphere. But this series of miracles that comes to us in Luke chapter 8, the stilling of the storm, the casting out of the demons of the demoniac, and later on, the raising of Jairus' daughter, these miracles are for disciples' eyes only. <laughs> Some of us think when we start to follow Jesus, everything's going to be safe, but we see that sometimes when you start following Jesus, that's when you get a picture of the way things really are. But even as the disciples see this, not everyone who marvels at Jesus' power is going to respond in faith. Our big idea this morning is Jesus acts with divine power to loose captives from uncontrollable evil. Jesus would tell a parable about binding the strong man, and that's a picture of his ministry, that he is binding up Satan, that he can plunder his house, that he can take what Satan has stolen from God. For our terms this morning, simply put, Jesus saves us by releasing us from Satan's power. This means that he came to free you from captivity and bring you back to God. What good news. I cannot tell you better news. Jesus came for you to free you from captivity. It doesn't matter how far down the road of perdition you have gone. It doesn't matter how close you are to hell. It doesn't matter how, how much you've invited Satan to take over and occupy your space. It doesn't matter how stained your hands and minds are with sin. Jesus came to release you. This text presents the way of salvation as a jailbreak. It's a jailbreak. Jesus has broken into the prison He's opened the cell doors, he's tied up the guards, and he's locked up the warden. It's a jailbreak. Even this morning, even today, Jesus Christ is plundering Satan. He is robbing him, reclaiming for God the very people that were lost the very souls, and Jesus will not stop until he has restored all that belong to his Father. The only question for us, really, is are we going to follow our king out of captivity? You've been sprung. Will you go free? Some contextual features here today in Luke 8, 26 to 39. It's a story of miraculous deliverance, but with mixed results. And so it fits within a series of miracles showing Jesus' divine power and authority over humanity's greatest threats. 
As a result of the fall, we became vulnerable people, and our greatest threats are just listed almost here, right in a row, by Luke in this series of encounters. Disasters, natural disasters. Ask the Germans this morning about natural disasters, where hundreds of people have died out of a flooding event that they haven't seen in a thousand years. Humanity is always susceptible to the forces of nature, which Jesus is quite able to calm with a word. Here we have the forces of the demonic, evil, spiritual, personal, intellectual beings who seek to hinder and destroy. Evil that is unseen, Jesus has power over them, and as we'll see next week, even over disease and death. But by contextual features this morning, we look at our audience. Again, as we've said, it's a revealing miracle. It's a miracle done in the setting of the Gentiles across the Sea of Galilee. And it's a miracle for disciples' eyes only. But Luke arranges the material in a tight and in a vivid way. He, he presents the, the interaction with the demoniac in such a way that, that you're almost there. And, and the confusion and the chaos that is, that is going on in this man is brought to life by Luke. But there's also some key phrases repeated. If you go back and study this text carefully, I encourage you to find these phrases. Ideas of seizing and grasping. Ideas of begging and telling. All of this fits within Luke's goal in this gospel to show how Jesus fulfills the work of God's Messiah. In Isaiah 61, one of the things the Messiah would come to do was to release the captives, to free them. That's exactly what Jesus does here. And all of this is part of a reversal where King Jesus, his kingdom, it's an upside-down kingdom, but ultimately that upside-down kingdom is a reversing kingdom where the fall and its effects and the demonic reign of the serpent is squashed. And all of those effects are undone as a part of the ministry of God's Messiah. And lastly, there's a feature here that Luke's, Luke's cosmology finds us amidst a real spiritual war. A real spiritual war. Luke's understanding of the world, the world that Jesus presents here, is one where it is not just what we see, but there's things that work beyond what we see. And these forces are working against God's purposes. Carl Henry would write this way. He would say, behind man and his fortunes, the Bible tells us there stands not only God, his sovereign maker and Lord, but also the agency of a malevolent spirit called Satan. Satan is no ape-like progenitor of man, nor is he fashioned from the dust of the earth. Rather, Satan is a fallen spirit from whom the angelic world, a demonic creaturely intelligence who impinges dramatically on the course of human events. A demonic creaturely intelligence who impinges dramatically on the course of human events. Evil in this world has its source not in God, but in God's adversary, Satan. And you and I, as creatures made in the image of God, as the crowning glory of God's creation, those who were put in charge of the dominion of this earth, we are the targets of this onslaught. We find ourselves pawns, collateral damage from the enemy.
The Bible presents a world where it is not just two forces battling, a yin and a yang. God is absolutely sovereign. God is not needing to prove himself to Satan. God is not unsure of the outcome. But nevertheless, God is at war with his adversary. And the good news this morning is that through the cross, Christ, through the cross, Christ has conquered Satan. Our outline today is this, that Jesus' power, as described by Luke in this encounter with the demon-possessed man, it comes to us in three stages. We'll look at it here. The binding, where we see a man constrained by demons, verses 26 to 29. And then we'll see the loosing, where we have demons constrained by Jesus, verses 30 to 33. And finally, the leaving, where faith is constrained by fear. Verses 24 to 39. With that, let's pray. Father, we come to you and we ask that you would speak to our hearts from this text. May you comfort us, encourage us, and bless us this morning. Thank you that your spirit is alive and active, that your word never fails. Thank you, Jesus, for your love. We come seeking your blessing, seeking your freedom. In your name, amen. The binding, verses 26 to 29, follow along with me. Here we find a man who meets, uh, Jesus is going to meet a man who's constrained by many demons who have entered and taken possession of him for their devilish purposes. This man, deemed a, loss, deemed a threat and a lost cause, is both bound and banished by personal evil forces. He's a man who is stripped of his dignity and driven mad, and he's living helplessly exposed. Verse 26, they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. They're in Gentile territory. Jesus is not going to spend a long time here. And in Luke's gospel, this is his sole venture into that territory. They have just come from a very stormy passage, and then... Verse 27, when Jesus steps ashore, he's met by a demon-possessed man from the town. And for a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. Jesus is encountered by a man who has no place in society. He has been expelled. It's a story that uncovers some of our deepest fears. Being held captive to the forces of unseen evil. This is the stuff horror movies are made of. But we're going to finish this story fearing Jesus more than the evil. The man is suffering from a chronic condition. Society doesn't know what to do with him. We're told a bit more about his condition and the encounter that follows. Verse 28, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. <laughs> Notice the demon here has answered the disciples' question. They were in the boat saying, who is this? Who is this guy? Who is this? The demon knows who it is. Jesus, son of the most high. I beg you, don't torture me. 
And then Luke gives us the background. He says, For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him. And though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. I appreciated John Carroll's description here. He says, The man has been separated from the city by his disorder and now inhabits a liminal space between worlds between the human and the demonic, between the living and the dead. And Jesus meets him in this place between worlds and brings release for which he has not asked. Here is a man shunned by society, living between the worlds, on, on the margin. He, he's, he, he's on the, the very, very brink of spiritual destruction. He is not self-possessed in any way. He has no control. He is naked. Robbed of his dignity and robbed of any sort of normal protection. He cannot control his body. He's thrown into convulsions. Susceptible to their power and also unable to be constrained by any other human power. And under this control of the demons, he is driven into isolation. Brothers and sisters, mark this down. There are people in this world whose lives is not that much different from this. They are isolated. They are exposed. They are out of control. They are stripped and robbed of their dignity and society has no place for them. They don't know what to do with them. Out of control, out of their mind. This is what the demons want to do. It will take you from community. It will take your dignity away. Cheapen the value of human life. Assault you in mind, and if you let it, assault in body. Now you say, how did this, how did this come to be? Well, we're not given the particulars of the story. We're, we're not told exactly how this man came to be this way. We don't know his story, but in some way, we do know the main story that is common to every human being. And that is, as the descendants of our first parents, Adam and Eve, we know that their experience was in being deceived by the serpent and rebelling against the command of God, that they were expelled from the garden. And I liked how Carl Henry described it this way. When Adam, he was expelled from intimacy with God. Notice what happens. The word of God, which once addressed him in privileged communion, now pronounces condemnation and doom on all mankind. Adam has a new identity outside of the garden. It is as a rebel that he merits the wrath of God, having become an alien in paradise under divine judgment. He must now fear the worst. 
You see, we have this idea sometimes that every human being starts in the same place, that we start in a neutral place with God. And that if we do good, that we will find God and walk with him. But if we do bad, we will not find God and we will walk into the devil's power and control. But the Bible says we don't start in neutral ground. We start outside the garden. We start with a sinful nature that in Luther's words, inclines us towards the earth. It bends us towards the dust. Our minds, our bodies, our spirits are under the fall. And of all those three things, the one that is dead when you come into this world is your spirit. You are physically here. You have the operation of certain faculties that God endowed you with. But spiritually, born in sin, you are born dead. Cut off from your creator, everyone is susceptible. Everyone. You say, what's, what's the devil's end game here? He doesn't care two wits about you. You are simply a pawn in his game. And his chief purpose is to express his fury through the destruction of everything good that God has made. Because in pride, the devil exalted himself to lead a rebellion, to not submit to the word of God, to not submit to his provident, loving, caring rule. And in that rebellion, he will take all that belongs to God, all that he can, and destroy it. And he doesn't care how. He can destroy it in scary ways like this, through taking over, people who've yielded control to him through various means, whether that's being enslaved to particular sins, whether it's giving your mind over to substances, to escaping and becoming vacant. But this man is bound. But the devil doesn't need to destroy people that way. He can just as easily destroy them through greed, through prosperity, through distraction, He will do anything to keep people from their creator. This man is bound. But the good news is, he's met the one who can free him. The loosing verses 30 to 33, confronted with the divine command, the demons here show their knowledge and regard for Jesus' power in begging that they be spared destruction in the abyss. Jesus is going to expel the demonic host with a word, thus loosing the, the man from his captivity. But demons are devious, and there is still more destruction. Verse 30, Jesus asked the man, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. Legion is a military term. It's a term for the armies that the Romans would send in to occupy God's 
promised land. It was a force around about 5,600 soldiers. Those scholars dispute the exact number. This man was the host of many demons. They begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. They've already addressed Jesus as son of the most high God. There's a recognition of who Jesus is. James would write about this in his epistle. James talks about how demons do have a faith. They, they have a recognition, an understanding of their fate. And here the demons see in Jesus their fate. And they're begging that it doesn't have to happen right now. Jesus has the power to destroy and put an end to this rebellion. But his mission right now is not the destruction of these demons. It's the liberation of this man. But they beg Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. Jesus grants their request. Verse 32, a large herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside. Demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. Now, don't be confused here. Jesus didn't drown the pigs. Jesus gave permission for the demons to leave. The pigs are driven into the sea by the demons. You say, why would they do that? I don't know. My guess is to cause trouble. My guess is to do anything to impinge on the work of Christ. And you'll see the role that this drowning of the pigs plays in the next section. But for a moment, can we stop and appreciate the power of Christ? Jesus comes to a man that humanity doesn't know what to do with. A man who himself cannot fight against the forces of evil. Through whatever means, his body and his very existence has become a vehicle for an army of demons. But before one Messiah, these demons are powerless. All it takes is one Jesus, the one Son of God. And they are absolutely helpless. They are begging at his feet. They are pleading with him. They know they are powerless. Brothers and sisters, never forget the power of Jesus Christ. There is no power like the power of Jesus. There is no demon, the devil himself. No one can stand against Jesus Christ. The man is helpless. Who would be able to withstand that onslaught from the demonic? None of us. But they are shaking and quaking before the living Christ. It's a preview of what's to come. A, a sub-theme of this section is, is anticipation. 
Anticipation in that the ministry is extending beyond the Jews to the Gentiles. Anticipation in that in the next section, a missionary is going to be commissioned who will not get to travel with Jesus, but who will get to go out and share the word of Jesus. And anticipation of the day when finally the abyss will be filled with Satan and the demonic host and sadly with all those who reject the Son by accepting the mark of the beast himself. You see, Luke's trying to show you something. You ever been in one of those situations where you show up at a party, or you're not having many parties these days, but you're invited to a work party, or you go to a conference, and you're seated at a table, and you're sitting around, and you're joking, and you're talking, and you're, and, and, and you're really feeling, you know, you're really feeling yourself, and, 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 and you feel like you're just sort of commanding the room, and you're, you're navigating everything, and then you come to find out that actually seated around you at the table are people who are a whole lot more qualified than you. People who've been doing it for a whole lot longer than you, whose expertise has been a whole lot greater than you, and whose maturity is now really shown to be greater than you because they know to keep their mouth shut and not to boast. <laughs> and you go away and you think, oh man, I gotta read the room. Can I tell you spiritually, read the room? Read the room? been going through Matthew's gospel this week and when Jesus is arrested in the garden he's betrayed by Judas and, 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 and the, the, the temple guards come and they show up to, to arrest Jesus and Jesus begins to protest and he's saying why are you doing this here? Why are you doing this now? You could have you you arrested me earlier in the week when I'm in public. Why are you doing this now? And the disciples think ooh, ooh we, we got a fight on our hands and, and, and one of the disciples with him draws the sword Jesus looks at him, put the sword away. He says, do you not know that at my command, I can summon several legions of angels to come and defend me? This man is overrun by a legion of demons. Jesus has legions of angels at his beck and call. And that is nothing for him. Read the room. Whose are you? If you belong to the Messiah, there is no greater power. But all doesn't end well. The leaving, verse 34 to 39, here with the demons exercised, Luke, he, he reports the fallout. The fallout as the key players in this story, Jesus, the, the demoniac, and, and the townspeople, they all disperse for their own reasons. But of note here is the constraining power of fear to prompt unbelief. Even so, this scene ends on Jesus' authority and identity as he commissions the first missionary. Verse 34, when those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. I, I would probably do the same thing. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. Everything's been reversed. He was naked, now he's clothed. 
He was cowering, now he's sitting. He is out of his mind, now he is, as one translator put, self-possessed. He can put coherent thoughts together. One of the marks of the influence of the evil one is chaos, confusion. The mark of the ministry of Christ is clarity, peace, restoration. This man sitting quietly at the feet of Jesus. What would you do if you saw that? How would you respond? Would you be afraid to go up close? Would you be afraid to say, is that really him? These townspeople are fearful. Verse 36, those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave because they were overcome with fear. It's a simple sentence, but it's a profound response because it means collectively they discussed the matter. And collectively they came to the decision that they were better off continuing as they were in a world and an existence without Jesus than they were with him. But the key lies in this phrase, they were overcome with fear. Literally, the original uses the same word to describe the demon-possessed man. Just as the demon-possessed man was seized with demons, so the town is seized and gripped with fear. Write this down. Fear has the power to put you on the side of demons. The same effect of opposition to the purposes of God is achieved not here through demonic possession, but through fear. You say, what are they afraid of? Luke doesn't really belabor the point. People have speculated about this for a long time. You know, maybe they're afraid of the economic impacts. You know, this is an agricultural society and, and to lose thousands of pigs in one go is, is just, it's an economic blow that, that's too hard to recover from. And they need to find somebody to blame and so they look to Jesus and they pin the blame and they say, we need to continue being able to, to, to live our way of life. Maybe. Maybe they had so much fear of the demon-possessed man and they thought, if that person was under so much evil control, how much power does this one have? If they saw the vulnerability of the demon-possessed man to spiritual power, and here comes along Jesus wielding greater spiritual power, maybe they looked at that power and they said, this is just too much for us, maybe. Or maybe it was simple as They couldn't change. 
John Carroll says this, he says, even constructive change can be disruptive and unwelcome. Which brings us back to the question. What are you trying so hard to control? What drives your waking hours? What moves your soul? What grips your mind? What, what, what holds you down in these ways that you are walking? What is it? Are you afraid of something? While their judgment, we can say it was terribly foolish, their conclusion that Jesus would be disruptive to their existence was, was entirely on the money. Their, their, their ability to recognize if we continue to let this Jesus into our lives and into our community, he will change things. That conclusion was spot on. Undeniable. But they're weighing up. They're valuing of, of their current existence versus all that Jesus came to do and to be. That valuation was horribly foolish. Costing them their very souls. For eternity. They forsook the living God, so they could wake up on a Monday and do the same things they did the last Monday, that they could buy the same things and pursue the same goals and have the same relationships and stroke the same ego and fulfill the same pleasures and satisfy the same vices so they could keep doing that. What were they afraid of? What are we afraid of? Thankfully, there was a powerless man who was so desperate, so broken, so beaten, so helpless, so rejected that he could let go of all that. And here he is, verse 38, sitting at the feet of Jesus. We're told the man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. He just wanted to be with Jesus. Can you blame him? You ask why people love Jesus so much? You want to wonder why? It's because he changes lives and he brings them freedom and he liberates their souls from the captivity to sin and to self, to Satan. He, he, he liberates people. That's why they want to be with him. That's why I'm not afraid that the church is going to die because of coronavirus. It's not. It's because... Jesus still loves and pursues and redeems captive souls. 
This is the gospel, that Jesus has disarmed our captors at the cross. Listen to this, Colossians 2, 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, that just means how you were not set apart for God. When you were dead in this state, God made you alive. How, Paul? How? He forgave us all our sins. You say, what does sin have to do with that? Isn't that just a moral category? No, it's not just a moral category. Sin is a force, a stain that separates you from God. It's the reason Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. It's the reason we're vulnerable in the first place. It's the reason the wrath of God lays over the world. But Christ forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. You say, that's great. God loves me. Thanks, pastor. I already knew that. Okay. Can I tell you it's more than that? This is so much more than sentiment because before Christ died on the cross, you could pursue God all you wanted, but you could never enjoy his presence. To be restored fully to what you were made to be in that relationship with God was not an option for anyone. You say, what about the Old Testament? What, what about people? What about the, the old saints? God in his graciousness was, was allowing them to experience a modicum, a, a, a small little piece of his glory and his presence. But it was nowhere near the fullness of being restored to him. That's why the glory of the new covenant is so much greater than the glory of the old covenant. Because the old covenant just taught you what God expected. The new covenant brings you into his presence. His word is written not on tablets of stone, but on your heart. All of this enabled through the crucifixion of Christ. But note the connection Paul makes in verse 15. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You say, how does the cross disarm Satan and all these demons? Here's how. The only thing that makes you vulnerable and exposed to their influence is your rebellion from God. They have no power over you unless you are in a state of rebellion before God. But before Christ, your sin was that barrier. That's, your sin was that status. Your, your sin made you a rebel. It cuts you off from your creator, and so you were vulnerable to them. But now that Christ has come, he has taken away any power that they have because now they, now they cannot stand between you and your creator. God redeems, God loves Jesus turns around and gets back on the boat. 
I don't know how long he was there on the other side. I don't know how long he was in Gentile territory. Most of the people didn't even want him. But you know what? When you read last week's passage and this week's passage back to back, I can tell you. He came for one man. That nobody was able to save. I can tell you the devil didn't want him there. But God went there anyway. Notice what the man says. Jesus commissions him. Jesus says, return home and tell how much God has done for you. Now note the parallel phrase. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Jesus says, go tell them what God's done for you. The man goes and says what Jesus did for him. Luke wants you to see the connection. The gospel is that Jesus has disarmed our captors on the cross, and now the gates are open. The jailbreak is on. That means you don't have to stay in your sin. It means you don't have to stay alienated from God. You don't need to, you don't need to keep living under judgment. You can live in a space of no condemnation and full restoration, walking with your creator in anticipation of the day when that kingdom will fully be and finally be here, when you will see him face to face. You say, what do I need to do? Adopt the posture of this man. You want to know what to do? Just look at the man and follow his body language. When he comes to Jesus, he bows at his feet. When Jesus offers him forgiveness, there he sits, listening. And when Jesus tells him to go, he goes. What will happen when you turn to Christ, he's going to lose four things and he's going to bind one thing. He will loose or he will open our eyes. He will make us aware of evil around us and in us. He'll open our minds to see the plans and purposes of God in this world. He'll open our hearts, making them free, liberating us from things we've been enslaved to, liberating us from fear itself, even a fear of death. And he'll loose our mouths. He'll give you a story. What is your story? What if every single one of us who's listening to this today said, you know what, this week, I'm gonna tell what God's done for me. I'm gonna tell them what Jesus did for me. The word used in verse 39 is preaching. The man went preaching what Jesus had done for him. You don't need a seminary education to tell your story. You don't need to have read the whole Bible to speak about the work of Christ in your life. But there's one thing that Jesus will bind. He will bind our pride. Because in our pride, is the seed of rebellion. 
that thread of thought that would raise its hand against God and say, I am not satisfied that you are my creator, but I will be the creator. I will be the determiner. I will be the one who controls my destiny. That impulse, Jesus will bind that. Will you let him? Let's pray. God, we are astounded at the power of Christ. May you loose us. Lord, open our eyes that we behold your glory. Open our minds that we understand your law. Open our hearts that we would love you more and more. And open our mouths that we would declare your wondrous works for the next generation. But Lord, would you shut off our pride. Lord, for those who are weak and wandering and far off, Lord, may you find them. May you go to them. Lord, we confess there's people we've given up on. But I'm grateful, Lord, that it does not depend on us, that you can reach them. May they cling to you. May they call out to you. May you hear and heal and restore and fill them with your Holy Spirit. That they would know your joy and freedom. And in all these things, we give you the glory and the praise, God. Would you receive our thanksgiving this morning? Lord, from couches and homes, from pulpits and platforms, Lord, from anywhere in this world, would you receive our thanks? You have done great things for us. Amen.